Welcome to tonight's Meaning It. Tensions are rising as COP26 draws to a close with no pathway to avoid climate catastrophe. Of course, the COP process isn't like a boxing match where you can achieve victory with a quick knockout punch. It's more like a world championship sumo wrestling match with one wrestler heaving his hefty opponent slowly back by a few inches, only to be pushed as slowly back the same few inches himself. It's a glacial process, frustrating many of the exhausted negotiators as much as it frustrates the protesters outside. Why does it have to be so slow? We all know the malign reason, the super rich fossil fuel owners who push and shove to keep the oil flowing at whatever cost to the planet. But there is a good reason too, the need for careful plans for a socially just transition to a new kind of economy. My guest tonight is Simon Maxwell, who has spent his entire working life pressing for social justice in the global south through good development. First, as the head of the world-renowned Institute for Development Studies in Sussex, UK, then as the head of the Overseas Development Institute, the foremost development research body advising governments around the world, and more recently as the chair of the Climate and Development Knowledge Network, and then chair of the European Think Tank Group. As someone who's both a COP outsider and a COP insider, for example, he chaired some of the negotiations at the Paris COP in 2015, he explained to me step by step just how vital but how complex these negotiations are. So, Simon, what's your reaction to the COP so far? It's been a complete roller coaster of emotions, hasn't it? On the one hand, here we are, there's good news, there's the coal declaration, there's uh, one on methane, there's another one on forests. Uh, there were those expectations that with everybody committing to net zero at some point in mid-century, we could get the temperature increase down to 1.8. So your spirits lift. And then on the other hand, when you start digging into all these pledges and looking in more detail, and you look at the timelines involved, then again, your spirits begin to sink. And we've just published, uh, UNEP has just published the update to its emissions gap report. I've sat on the steering committee of that for the past decade or so. And what that shows is that before COP, we were heading for a temperature increase of 2.7 degrees based on all the pledges and commitments and plans that countries had submitted. A few came in late, so that number has come down by a, a little bit, but not nearly enough. And there's still a huge gap between what countries have pledged to do by 2030 and where they need to be in order to be on what's called the least cost pathway to 2 degrees or 1.8 or 1.5. And I think the document that's now circulating reflects that, doesn't it? Um, but here's the thing, a couple of things to hang on to, really. The first is um, the good news is lots of countries have made pledges for net zero by the middle of the century, 2070 in the case of India, 2060 China, I think 2050, many developed countries. And that is OK. If we manage that on a reasonable trajectory, then we will still get to our 1.5 target. Um, and of course, in terms of the document, well, it's only Wednesday 
and we know these things run not just to the last minute but over the uh, deadline into Saturday quite often and sometimes even to Sunday. And if you ask me what is the one thing that I think we should be focused on between now and the end of the week, it is the date by which countries will come back with new pledges. Uh, these nationally determined contributions that countries were required to submit in advance of COP26 and some of them only just made it by the skin of their teeth. Now the document says let's come back in 2022. Um, I've always thought 2023 was more realistic but either of those would be a very good start with more commitments for 2030 and as soon as we can also commitments beyond 2030. And do you think they will? This is the thing. Do they mean it? Well, some do. Some mean it more than others. I think some are committing to these great global pledges, but we haven't yet seen it in their national plans. And the criticism that's been made, you know, of all the pledges around Boris Johnson's big four, the coal, cars, cash and trees, the pledges that have been made around those are very high level global pledges. Same was true of methane. And what we need to do is to see those translated into the plans that each country submits. And in the update to the UNEP emissions gap report, and indeed in the main report that came out just a few weeks ago, one of the points they make is that some of those are already priced in, already built into the plans countries have submitted. So what we need to do, of course, is to look for the additionality. You know, what's new, what's additional. Now, if you look at the 2050 pledges, as I said, you know, good news. 2050 net zero. Uh, if we can manage that at a reasonable cost, then we're on track to decarbonize the world economy. But a lot of those pledges are just rather insubstantial. They are they don't have the level of detail we need. We don't know which gas is. Um, we don't know what the trajectory is. And so those are all the decisions that need to be fleshed out. And they can be in the next round of nationally determined contributions. Whether they can do that by next year, I think, is a big negotiating point in the next two or three days. Could you tell us something about the BOGA countries? And that, that group seems to be growing now, Simon. Could you tell us why those countries have stepped forward to uh, really focus on the fossil fuel industry and which countries are not going to really uh, want to go that way? Obviously, the countries that depend on oil or coal, like um, Russia or Saudi Arabia, I mean, or, or even Canada with their tar sands, are, are these countries which are so big and so powerful and have such vested interests, are they going to get their way rather than countries like Denmark, you know, who are showing willing to, to move? Well, and you can add China and India to your list there. Look, I think this is a really interesting and difficult issue. If you're a country which has big development needs, as some of those do, not Canada so much, obviously, but China and India and many countries in Africa, and you need energy in order to develop, and as it happens, you have access to coal or oil or gas, then you need to think really hard about um, the steps you're going to take in order to develop without using those resources. Um, we've seen in Europe how important it is when you think about the transition out of coal to think about the social costs as well as simply the energy transition. Germany, you know, has, has, um, has something like 45 billion euros in a fund which is designed to compensate 
the coal mining communities and the coal mining regions, helping people to find new jobs, new skills, new industries that will replace the coal. And we know in the UK how difficult it is if the coal mining industry stops to replace the jobs and the livelihoods for people. And we had a long-standing, deep scarring caused by the closure of the coal mines when Mrs Thatcher was a Prime Minister. So I feel great sympathy for countries like India and China who are trying to make this transition. Now, the UNFCCC, interestingly enough, has a device which is highly relevant to this, which is that they ask for two kinds of commitments for countries. The unconditional nationally determined contributions and the conditional nationally determined contributions. And the point of having this second tier, these conditional NDCs, is for countries to be able to say, well, we can do this, but this is the kind of help we need. Now, I haven't studied every single nationally uh, conditional NDC, but my sense is they're not very complete and they're not necessarily as demanding of rich countries as they should be. And I'd like to see really good transition plans which include both the technical and the social costs and that developed countries are then able to provide more support to those who are making the transition. Isn't it time for all fossil fuels to be kept in the ground and not extracted? Well, it's clear, isn't it, that we have to get fossil fuels um, out of the system as quickly as we can. That's coal and oil and gas and the, the side uh, emissions like methane, which are so short-lived but so damaging in the short run. And we need to do it in a way which is socially just. Are we going to be able to live without any fossil fuels in the immediate future? I think that's probably a little bit problematic. What we should certainly do is take fossil fuels out of the energy system and then we can reserve whatever fossil fuels we have less left for things like uh, uh, material transformation, you know, and, uh, and for chemicals and so on. So, yes, rapid decarbonisation of the energy system Yes, a rapid decline in fossil fuel use, but with a realistic understanding of what's needed in the medium term and of the social consequences of change. So if you were running Shell, say, or BP, what would you do? Well, I'd certainly be looking very hard at the future of my company. I'd be wanting to move into renewable energy as quickly as possible. I'd be looking to see whether any of my assets can be used to help build wind farms, for example, offshore turbines. Um, I'd be looking at any potential for carbon capture and storage uh, underground. And I'd be, as some of those companies do actually already, imposing an internal carbon price to make sure that every decision we took was fully, took fully into account the, the demands on the climate and the need to reduce emissions at the fastest possible rate. When you look at who's in the room, at the COP, many countries have joined groups, and some of them more than one group. So you've got the African countries, the uh, the AOSIS countries, the island states. You've got the Climate Vulnerable Forum, and one of the groups that became very prominent in Paris was the High Ambition Coalition, in which the EU is involved, but also a number of developing countries. And what I really admire about that is it's a group which cuts across that boundary between the historic emitters and the most vulnerable countries, pressing together for high ambition. And they played a really key role in Paris in delivering the Paris Agreement, the commitment to well below two and aiming at 
degrees and they're still active now. They're active um, in the COP in Glasgow and I'm sure they're behind some of the initiatives that we've seen coming through in the last uh, 10 days or so. And that is the way in which negotiations can be most successful if you can build alliances. You know, it's okay to have a pressure group over here calling for one thing and a pressure group over there calling for something else. But if you can create an alliance of people who are at first sight rather dissimilar, rich countries and poor countries in this case, but all pressing for the same thing and supporting each other, well then I think you can begin to deliver uh, real change uh, internationally. What we don't want at the COP is some kind of standoff between the G77 on the one hand you know, and the OECD on the other. Uh, we need to be building bridges. And that can work because there is a common interest. Um, it isn't in Europe's interest to have heating of 2.5 or 3 degrees, just as it isn't in the interests of the Maldives or the Marshall Islands. So that gives us a shared interest, a common platform on which to build uh, an agreement. And then, of course, come all the discussions about how to deliver it and what it's going to cost them. So then you have to look at those who do come in with less ambitious plans and possibly with a malign intent. And we can all think of who those might be. And we have to ask, how does the negotiation work? What levers can we bring to bear? What incentives can we provide? Uh, what persuasion can we suggest that would enable countries to come on board? You know, the whole point, the whole, the whole foundation of the UNFCCC has always been that it's voluntary. Copenhagen allegedly failed partly because... Uh, some people wanted to have accountability built into the system in a way that made countries somehow rather liable for not meeting ambitious targets and allocate carbon emissions in the future as between countries. The whole Paris proposition was that's not going to work, let's do it bottom up. So let's create a vision of positive futures. Let's emphasise the co-benefits, the clean air, the better health, the lower temperatures that make working more, more feasible that are associated with climate action. Let's look at all the benefits of new technology and how that can make uh, life better. And then the people who are laggers won't want to be left behind. You know, who wants to be living next door to a coal-fired power station breathing in the fumes if you could be living in a clean, low-energy environment? Well, this brings me to another key point. We keep hearing about uh, finance for the developed world as if it was some kind of charitable handout, when really, shouldn't we see these partly as a deeply practical global step to enable countries to do what we all need them to do, not only those countries, but the whole world, because otherwise we're, we're sliding ever faster towards, towards destruction. And, and, and secondly, you know, if, if, if the rich countries have benefited so hugely from extracting uh, resources from the poor, all these poor countries all these years, for decades through colonization, for example, isn't it a matter of reparation for the damage we've done and benefited from, and therefore shouldn't be seen as some sort of optional charitable aid? I think you're completely right to say that rich countries have an interest in financing the transition in poor countries. I worry about the reparations argument because I think it would put up such a wall of hostility from rich countries that the whole process of financial transfers would become part of some kind of legal process. And I think we can achieve the same result, probably in less confrontational ways. 
but the big issue that I, that the the um, that the COP has grappled with, and that we've looked at in many other contexts, is the balance between national and international finance on the one hand, and public and private finance uh, on the other. Of course, a hundred billion has become a totemic number for mitigation and adaptation. It's linked to the loss and damage uh, debate in the COP. But what we all know is that we need trillions, not billions. But what we also see, and this is partly, of course, the work of people like Mark Carney, but we also see it happening already, is that the private sector is beginning to provide much more money for um, climate change and for green activities than it used to. We had a series of, of discussions and debates between Bangladesh and the UK earlier this year, jointly moderated by me and by Salim Hook, who's of course a great expert on all this and a great proponent of loss and damage um, and a good friend. And we had a number of finance people talking about how they were able to access mainstream finance in order to deliver climate actions on the ground and that we should celebrate that. And it also means, therefore, that we can limit the range of what is done by public sector international finance. We should be focusing on uh, helping infant industries, new solar or new electric battery industries in developing countries. We should be helping with, um, with, with uh, global and regional and local public goods. You know, there's no point in using public money to finance something in a developing country that is going to be financed anyway by the private sector. We need to really use that limited amount of money we have really carefully in order to kickstart change and provide basic social safety nets and the basic uh, public goods that countries need. Isn't there an argument though that if the private sector simply rolls in that um, the, the resources of the South will once more be extracted to give private benefit that goes back to the north rather than um, the private sector being very sensitive to the needs of the local people and having more local ownership. For example, if they develop solar power or wind power locally um, in a way that gives more control to the communities themselves who have had a history of being exploited in the past. Well, clearly there have to be guidelines, rules and standards for all investment and a lot of the investment you're talking about will come from national governments, countries like Bangladesh investing hugely in uh, local projects and you may not need international, certainly international private sector finance to do the kinds of projects you're talking about and that may be where we want to see uh, the public finance used. But there are big projects that are, uh, you know, financeable. Uh, ready for finance in in poor countries. And I want to say one thing about this Anurada, which is always a puzzle for me at COP, because the whole UNFCCC system is predicated on the idea that what really matters are the emissions by countries. They're what are called their territorial emissions. And it's always worried me a lot that what we don't focus on nearly enough is the consumption emissions and the footprints of countries. And if you look at all the rich countries, they import a lot of the goods they consume. And so the carbon cost goes on the developing country and not the developed country. And we need to sort that and, and focus um, a little bit more on our footprints, because something like 
I think 40% of all the carbon emissions in the world are traded across international borders. And then there's a big risk for developing countries. And the risk is that rich countries will put up carbon border tariffs, carbon border uh, uh, um, impediments to trade, so that anybody exporting from a developing country into a developed country will have to pay a carbon tax. Now, that could be extremely damaging, and the thing to do about it is to invest really quickly in greening the supply chains and helping developing countries to have much greener industry in every sector, in their food exports, their mineral exports, of course, but also all their growing manufacturing exports. And what we can't allow to happen is that developing countries get left behind and become the source of high carbon exports to the rest of the world. It's certainly the case um, in the UK that our Prime Minister has boasted a lot about how much the UK has, has dropped its emissions. But, you know, what I hear is that a large proportion of this drop is actually, well, partly due to the closure of coal here in the UK and partly due to outsourcing our emissions, just as you say to China and other places in the developing world? Well, I think it's the case that something over 40% of the UK's carbon footprint is imported. Now, the imported share, the imported carbon, embodied carbon is also falling as countries begin to roll out renewable energy, for example. But it's still quite a lot. And the question then is, is that caused simply by us buying stuff from China? And some of it is. Some of it is caused by our increased income and some of it is caused by increased population in the UK. So uh, when I've looked at some of the research on this, it's not always the case that everything is due to just importing more stuff. But we do import more stuff and I'm strongly of the view that individuals look to, need to look at their behaviour. You know, we need to fly less, we need to eat less meat, we need to buy less stuff. Um, and the way I summarise this is we need to um, shrink, shift and shuffle. We need to shrink our total consumption. We need to uh, shift between uh, low and high carbon uh, um, activities, travel by train, not by plane. And we need to shuffle our consumption within categories so that we're using low carbon options. Shrink, shift, shuffle. And we need to be accountable for our own carbon footprint, which most of us at the moment are not. So are you, on balance, optimistic or pessimistic, Simon? Look, I think we're certainly in a different place than we were in 2010. Uh, the emissions, not to flood you with numbers, but on 2010 policies, the emissions in 2030 were going to be 64 gigatons. Uh, now they're in uh, the mid-50s on current policies. So we've begun to bend the curve down if people deliver on the plans that they have promised. Not all have, but most have. And we can see that in countries like the UK, where we have a legal requirement to get to net zero, we have an independent body which sets targets, which sets a series of climate budgets, which we are meeting, where 1.5, which was a little bit of a dream in Paris, has now become the default temperature target in Glasgow. I think people now get it. People understand the urgency. People see the impact of climate extreme weather events on, on, on people's livelihoods and well-being. So we're in a better place than we were in 2010. Have we done enough? Of course we haven't. 
But now what we know what we need to do, we need to get these 2050 plans, which are in the right direction, we need to get them onto an accelerated path so we start to deliver more change between now and 2030 and then into the 2030s. You know, delaying into the 2030s is feasible, but it costs more. And we need to get a better understanding of how much that extra cost would be because we don't want people building infrastructure which then becomes redundant. We don't want people with assets that are, they can't use in the 2030s. That's why it's so good to start early and get on with it. If we'd, here's one more figure for you, Anuradha. If we'd started in 2010, we would have been okay if we'd reduced emissions by about 2.5% a year. If we start in 2020, we need to reduce them by 7% a year. So every year we delay, the target gets harder to meet. But we know what the target is. So now, you know, cash and cars and, and uh, carbon and trees and all those other things that they talk about, that's where we need to really focus. And what is your particular focus going to be, Simon, in the next year? Because I'm sure we'll talk again in, in, at COP27. And what will you be looking at particularly, or will you be still working on this broad scale? Well, of course, I'm always interested in the development aspects of this because I'm not a climate person, I'm a development person. So I'm interested in how low-income countries can deliver a just transition, which is consistent with the sustainable development goals, which means they don't get frozen out of markets. And in all this debate about, you know, the new future and whether or not we can sustain growth, nobody says ever that poor people need to be made poorer, that the people who are living below absolute poverty lines don't need to get up over and above those lines. So our clear focus for developing countries has to be how do they produce the plans and then deliver them, which deliver both climate action and better uh, incomes, livelihoods, um, human rights, uh, political accountability, democracy for all their people. You know, I've always thought the Sustainable Development Goals were a really good statement of where we want to get to, but not a very good roadmap. So now it's time that we start to develop um, that roadmap from now to 2030. And within the climate sphere, there's a couple of things I really want to work on. One is this issue of footprints. How do we get people to reduce their footprints? And then we need to really think more about this debate about how we measure progress and whether degrowth it does provide us with an answer or whether we can focus instead on environmental policy. And there's no question in my mind that, of course, this is a life and death issue for humanity. So climate action, climate change debates need to be at the heart of everything we do. You know, whether it's primary education or girls or anything you like, really, or pandemics even, climate action and building back better has to be at the heart of our future plans. Well, thank you so much, Simon. Anuradha, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much.